everyone. Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, podcasting to you from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And welcome to the second sermon from The Mind Renewed. But just before I get going with that, I'd like to say thank you to those of you who sent me emails of appreciation and encouragement for what I'm doing here. It is, as you can imagine, of course, always great to receive feedback. So thanks ever so much to those of you who have sent me those messages. And one of the things which I've been saying in replying to those emails is if any of you have any ideas or suggestions as to subjects that it would be really interesting to look into or people that it might be good to interview, then please do let me know. Obviously, I can't promise to be able to follow up on every single suggestion, nor can I guarantee that every guest will be available, but it would certainly be great to get an idea of what's on people's minds. So please do feel free to share with me any ideas that you have. And finally, on a programming note, I've just interviewed Dr. Eric Karlstrom on the subjects of climate change and geoengineering. So that podcast should be coming out in the next week. So without further ado, let me read a couple of short portions from the New Testament, from two undisputed letters of Paul. And when I say undisputed, that just means that historians are pretty much agreed that these were indeed written by Paul. First from his letter to the Christians in Galatia, or central Turkey as we know it today, and then from his first letter to the Corinthian Christians in Greece. So first of all, Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 to 24. And here Paul is telling us what he was like before he became a believer in Jesus. And then after he'd met the risen Christ, who it was he talked to and when he talked to them. And the relevance of all that will become clear, I hope, in what I have to say a little bit later. So Galatians 1, 13 to 24. You have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years... I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, Peter, and stayed with him fifteen days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report, The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. And then secondly, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. And this is particularly important because here Paul gives us a list of eyewitnesses who claimed actually to have met Jesus shortly after he'd resurrected from the dead. So I'm reading here from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 to 11. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James 
then to all the apostles, and last of all he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles, and I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. Now I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. Now this podcast is coming out just a couple of days before Easter Sunday, which of course is the day when millions all over the world celebrate Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And you'd think that given what a mind-blowing and paradigm-blasting event that was, if in fact it did take place, that of all the days in the year that Christians celebrate, this would be by far the most important. But as we know, it's not. It's Christmas, because that's when all the decorations come out, the Christmas trees go up, that's when all those presents get exchanged. But for the early Christians, the very first followers of Jesus, without a doubt it was this resurrection from the dead that was by far the most important. For the simple fact that many of them believed that they'd actually seen Jesus in post-death resurrected state. This was, so they believed, their experience. And if we consider the broader context of their experience, they'd seen their rabbi, their teacher, who had claimed to be the Messiah, claimed to be the anointed one of God, and they'd believed that he was the Messiah, they'd seen him crucified on a pagan Roman cross, which was absolutely unthinkable. I mean, just the idea that the Messiah was allowed to be killed was unthinkable. But there's a further dimension to this, because if we listen to what it says in Deuteronomy in the Hebrew Bible, in Deuteronomy 21:23, it says, anyone who is hung on a tree is under God's curse. So as far as they were concerned, God had rejected Jesus. He wasn't the Messiah. They'd lost all hope in that. And we get a sense of this disillusionment from Luke's gospel, where Luke has that story about a couple of followers of Jesus on the road to Emmaus. And ironically, they meet the risen Christ. Strangely enough, they don't realize it's the risen Christ, but they speak to him and they say, we had hoped he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. That really captures the sense of disillusionment at the time. In other words, that hope is gone. We don't hope in that anymore. It's not at all like that film, The Greatest Story Ever Told, where the women disciples go to Jesus' tomb with a great sense of excitement. One of them says something like, oh, he said that he'd rise on the third day. So she gets up with this great sense of anticipation, rushes off to the tomb. And this is complete nonsense. They were depressed. They were disillusioned. And what they were expecting to see basically was a bloody corpse. Because that's what crucifixion was. It was often preceded by flogging with metal-hooked whips. Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, if you've seen that, I I think that flogging scene probably does go on too long, but basically they got it right. And then you were expected to carry your own crossbeam, and crucifixion itself was a mixture of humiliation because you were naked, exquisite pain and exhaustion, which could go on for many, many hours, sometimes, in fact, days, And finally, you would die from suffocation. And if the Roman soldiers weren't satisfied that you were dead at this time in the empire, they would break your legs because then you simply couldn't push yourself up to breathe anymore. And so you'd die within 11, 12 minutes, something like that. And as we know, that didn't happen to Jesus. It says in John's gospel that his legs weren't broken because he was already dead. You see, that's what they were expecting to see. But as they got nearer, as the women got nearer to the tomb and they saw that the stone had already been rolled away, 
They were filled with fear and they were confused and understandably they fled from the scene. But then, over the next few weeks, the followers of Jesus claimed that he had shown himself to them. And gradually, one by one, group by group, they came to believe that he was in fact alive again. And that God had vindicated him as the Messiah. He was in fact the Messiah after all. And that death was somehow now conquered. And that the kingdom of God that Jesus had been talking about throughout his ministry had now in some sense already begun, had now dawned. And so it was this resurrection that dominated their preaching because that was their experience. That's what they believed they had experienced. Now, it would be absolutely great if we could ourselves experience what these early Christians experienced. That would clear up so many of our questions. But I guess second best would be to have eyewitness testimony from those who believe they'd met Jesus risen from the dead. Well, that's exactly what we do have. In this 1 Corinthians 15 passage, what Paul gives us is precisely eyewitness testimony from people who at least believed that they'd seen the risen Christ. And he presents it to us in the form of a list. First, he says, Jesus appeared to Peter, Jesus' disciple Peter. Now, I know that in John's gospel, it says that Mary Magdalene was the first person to see Jesus risen from the dead, and that can sometimes cause people problems, of course. But we've got to remember who Paul was. He was an ex-Pharisee, and it just so happens that in Jewish culture at the time, and I'm sorry to have to say this, but this is the way it was, at that time, the testimony of a woman was not considered to be all that valuable. So, I mean, just listen to what Josephus says, the first century Jewish historian. He writes, Let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. So I apologize for that, but I think it might explain why Paul simply doesn't mention Mary Magdalene, because I guess he didn't think there was much point in doing so. But we can add her to the list. So there's Mary, and there's Peter, and then Paul says Jesus appeared to the twelve. That's the eleven remaining disciples after Judas Iscariot has gone. It's still known as the twelve. Then he says he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, which is a huge number of people. Then he says he appeared to James. That's most probably Jesus's brother. Then he appeared to all the apostles, he says. We're not quite sure where. Maybe in Jerusalem, as recorded at the beginning of the book of Acts. And then last of all, Paul says he appeared to me also, which I think is very, very important because Paul doesn't really want to include himself in this list. He's embarrassed to because he remembers that he used to persecute the first Christians. And you can tell that he's embarrassed, because he says, I am the least of the apostles, and don't even deserve to be called an apostle. So he really doesn't want to mention himself. But, And this is why I think this is so important, as a piece of, if you like, psychological evidence. He has to include himself in the list, for the simple reason that Jesus did in fact appear to him. He experienced that. He doesn't want to include himself, but he has to. So what the Christians at Corinth are presented with here is a rich catalogue of eyewitness testimony from all sorts of people. But just in case anybody might think, well, yeah, it's certainly an impressive catalogue of testimony, but it's a long time ago. It's 25 years since Jesus died. How can we check any of this out? We can't check any of it out. Paul anticipates that and he nips that in the bud straight away. And he basically says, that's irrelevant. Most of them are still living. He says some of them have fallen asleep, which of course is a way of saying they've died, but most of them are still alive. He's basically saying you can go to Jerusalem and have a chat with them. 25 years is actually not all that long ago. 
but of course it seems like a long time to us. You know, we can forget 25 years, we're looking at 2,000 years here, and that really is a long time, and, and there's no way of checking any of this out. So how can we trust what the New Testament says after all that time? Well, I think we can trust it, and my reasoning is this. I think what matters is not so much the time gap between us in 2013 and the original writing of this letter in about 8055. What matters is precisely this 25-year period between about 8030 and 8055. And the reason why I say that is because textual critics, people who actually study the New Testament manuscripts, say that they are satisfied that we basically have what Paul wrote. They often say things like, we have the New Testament with something like 99% accuracy, and the 1% where there is uncertainty, well, that doesn't affect the basic teaching of the New Testament at all. We basically have what was originally written. So actually, we can collapse that 2,000 years back down into just those 25 years. We have what the Corinthians originally heard. But then, of course, there can be further questions about the 25-year period, even if it was just 25 years between Jesus' death and Paul writing this letter, perhaps that is enough time for myths to grow about Jesus rising from the dead. Well, here I'd like to go on a short arithmetical journey. Our question is, could myths have crept into the tradition about Jesus during this 25-year period? Well, there's something important to note about this passage in 1 Corinthians. When Paul says, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, he carries on like this. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, that he appeared to Peter. Now that is odd. That is not Paul's normal way of writing. And it is widely acknowledged that what Paul is doing here is quoting something else. He's quoting, most probably, a very early Christian creed. You know, like people in churches say things like, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, statements of belief like that in a kind of list form. Well, Paul is probably doing exactly the same sort of thing here. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, that he appeared to Peter. And He's been given this by somebody else, and he's passing it on to the Corinthians, which is exactly what he says. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. It doesn't come from Paul. It comes from somebody else. And we have a good idea of who Paul got it from, and we have a good idea of when he got it as well. We know that Jesus died about AD 30, maybe AD 33. It makes no difference for what I'm saying here. So let's just say AD 30 for simplicity. We know that Paul got converted about three or four years later, so that makes AD 34. We know from his letter to the Galatians, which is the first one that I read, that Paul went to Jerusalem and visited Peter and James for the first time no more than three years after that. So that makes, at most, AD 37. And if we're wondering about what they talked about, well, the great New Testament scholar Charles Harold Dodd said many, many years ago, we can be sure that they talked about more than the weather. They talked about the gospel. Surely they talked about the gospel. They probably talked about this list, which means that this list of witnesses, of eyewitnesses, most probably goes back to within the first seven years of the early church. In other words, practically to the year dot. So this preaching that Christ had risen from the dead and that he had appeared to these people was the very earliest preaching of the very early church. 
So to my mind, there just isn't time for myth to creep into the tradition. So the question is not, did something happen to these disciples? Indeed, it's widely accepted among historians that these people did actually experience something. The question that remains is, what happened? What did they actually experience? And just by the way, the many other popular objections like, well, maybe Jesus never existed anyway, or maybe the disciples just made stuff up, or Jesus didn't die on the cross and so on. These kinds of suggestions have all been widely rejected by New Testament historians, many of whom, contrary to popular imagination, are not themselves believers. And far be it from me, blindly to appeal to a majority opinion among academics, just because it is a majority opinion, I simply don't have time to go into every possible objection in a podcast like this. So, so far as I can see, the problems raised by these kinds of objections are greater than accepting the testimony we have. And that's why the majority of historians agree that this testimony in 1 Corinthians 15 is genuine. So that brings us back to the question, what happened? What did these people actually experience? Did they see the risen Christ or did they perhaps have some kind of hallucination? Now, at first sight, I would agree that this looks tricky because, as we know, some people do hallucinate deceased loved ones. And I'm given to understand that, although it's very rare, there are some very unusual cases of groups of people hallucinating as well. But I do think there's a major flaw with that suggestion. I think we have to ask ourselves a series of questions along the lines of probability. How likely is it that one person should have an hallucination about Jesus? Well, I don't think that's more likely than not, but given the fact that we're clearly dealing with hundreds of people here, I agree, it's quite possible. That could have happened to someone. So how likely is it that another person might also hallucinate about Jesus? Well, given the fact that probabilities multiply, that's going to be less likely, but I guess it's still quite feasible. But how likely is it that one person and another person and another and a group of at least 11 people and again, a group of unspecified number, and indeed a whole congregation of 500 people, should all hallucinate about Jesus, including an unbeliever, as James was at the time, and an enemy, as Paul was at the time, and all give the same account that they'd seen him resurrected from the dead, when none of them, as first century Jews, was expecting a resurrection to happen until the end of the age. To my mind, that probability is vanishingly small, and I therefore consider the hallucination theory to hold no water. Thus, I'm convinced that the most reasonable conclusion, given the evidence that Paul passes on to us, is that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. And of course, that involves faith. There is an element of decision in this, because what Paul presents us with is evidence. It's not proof. I don't think you can prove that Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, I don't think you can prove that God exists. But you can have evidence. Because all that evidence does is to point us in a certain direction and invites us to make a decision. And I maintain that to decide in favour of the resurrection and to place one's faith in Christ can indeed be a rational decision based on evidence. And of course I'm completely aware that the materialist will say the resurrection couldn't have happened because there's no supernatural reality. To which I would say, is materialist philosophy per se really more obviously true than evidences like this? of which there are a number that point precisely in the direction of a supernatural reality. Indeed, I would contend that the evidence in favour of the resurrection is of such quality as to raise a significant challenge to materialist assumptions. But at the end of the day, I've said all of this by way of encouragement. 
because once we have made the decision in favour of Christ, the implications for the believer are frankly mind-boggling. Listen carefully to what Paul says in his letter to the Christians at Rome, Romans 8.11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. If you and I believe in this Messiah Jesus, the New Testament is clear. We have God's spirit living in us. And Paul is saying, just as God resurrected Jesus from the dead through the power of his spirit, in exactly the same way, through exactly that same power, God shall one day resurrect us too. We shall one day be raised from the dead just like he was into what the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation, the real new world order, we might say, when God makes all things new. And this is part of what we celebrate at Easter, not only Jesus' resurrection from the dead, but by way of anticipation, ours too. <laughs>